Okay, uh, we're continuing with the help of heaven, our studies in Oros HaTshuva, and we're up to Perak Beis. Perak Beis is titled, now, I think I mentioned this before, that the first three prakam of Oros HaTshuva constitute a self-contained island that was actually written by Rav Cook in a single flourish. The rest of the Sefer is various different pieces that were extracted from his writings from all over his various notebooks by his students, by uh, his son, Rav Tzvi Hudakuk, as well as um, by his primary students, most notably Rav David Cohen the Nazir, as well as, um, as well as, I'm just going to read that, as well as, um, Rav Yaakov Musharlap a little bit, but mostly Rav Tzuyuda Kuk and Rav David Kohen the Nazir took the writings of Rav Kuk and then organized them as the rest of the Sefer. But the, the first three prokim are a standalone work that Rav Kuk wrote that he actually referred to, and we've spoken about this before, he referred to as the Igeres HaTshuva, the Tshuva letter. So in that sense, the first three chapters um, are in some way the backbone of all of Rav Kuk's thought about Tshuva. And everything else are individual kind of flourishes of thought that come after the fact, but really this is one really self-contained idea. And so if last week and the week before that, even though it wasn't, you know, contiguous, if, if the past two times that we were learning together, we were learning about, um, in the first chapter of Rav we were learning about these three different types of tshuva. A tshuva which is very much centered in a feeling that's very personal, that's called tshuva tivis, that is the personal tshuva that comes from the gut, whether that is an emotional feeling or whether it's a physical feeling of having, uh, you know, indulged in something that I shouldn't have indulged in physically and then my body kind of rejects that feeling, or whether it's an emotional feeling we said a moment ago. And then the higher levels of tshuva, which are, um, which are maybe a tshuva emunis, a type of faith-based tshuva, which comes based on learning text and learning Torah and learning shar, you know, uh, shari tshuva of Rabbeinu Yonah and learning the hilchas tshuva of the Rambam and learning different works of tshuva and then finally a tshuva sichlis, which is this more holistic tshuva me'ava type of thing. That's what we learned about last week. And this week, totally self-contained, it's, just, it's not dependent on having been here last week, in chapter two, Rav Kook describes two different modes of tshuva that are, instead of talking about kind of styles of tshuva. Instead, now Rav Kook is going to talk about two different temporal maps of tshuva, two different um, time stamps that a person can kind of run their self-development against. So just very, very simply, one of them is this very sudden type of burst of, I need to totally scrap everything and start over from scratch. I need to burn all the bridges and I need to just completely, like a phoenix, just explode and just rise out of the ashes and become like a, a brand new thing. That's what, again, the, the titles were not provided by Rav Kook. That's called Tshuva Pit Omis. Okay, that's the one, one half of the title of tonight's uh, Perek. And the other half is called Tshuva Hadragit, from the word Madrega, which is a gradual type of Tshuva, which happens slowly but surely. Now, these two different modes of Tshuva which, again, are not two different ways of doing tshuva, like something which is very 
um, internal feeling like a teva or a faith-based or sikhless, those are, that's not, we don't really measure those in time. Those are just different kind of senses of how a person might go about doing tshuva. What exactly is triggering the tshuva? Is it some feeling in my body or in my emotions? Is it a, a text that's external, that's a revelation from Hashem or from one of the Nevi'im or one of the Chachamim? Or is it some higher level of tshuva sikhless, which is maybe a combination of the two of those? None of that speaks to how this is happening in a time, uh, on a time register. In other words, is this happening gradually over 50 years of my life? Is this something that, you know, all of a sudden I wake up one morning and I feel like I'm a totally changed person? So that's more what Cook is going to talk about now. These two different ways of doing tshuva, one which is called tshuva pitomis, something that happens all of a sudden, and the other which happens gradually, tshuva hadragit, and as we're going to learn, hopefully this evening, both of them have um, positives to them. Both of them have something about them which is, um, which is, you know, perhaps more helpful in terms of there's a way of doing tshuva that's all of a sudden, that's so pit om, it just blows open your whole world. But, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a very maybe powerful way of doing tshuva, but at the same time, maybe there's something about that which is not super healthy. And then there's the gradual kind of growth, which takes patience and takes many years of, of discipline and consistency. And, but at the same time, it's not this like volatile, up and down type of... Um, so both of them have something positive about them, both of them have something negative, and the goal, as we're going to see, in the third paragraph, if you just want to quickly glance, it's helpful if you have the Sefer, if you want to quickly glance, there's, there's effectively, there's an introductory sentence, and then there's three paragraphs. The first paragraph begins, hapitomis, and then the second paragraph begins, v'yeshna tshuva hadragit, that's the second one, and then he's going to talk about hatshuva ha'elyona, which again is going to be hopefully some sort of synthesis, some sort of synthesis of these two different modes of tshuva, one which is very sudden, and the other which is gradual and consistent and measured, and, um, and so let's jump right in. And we'll try to speak about the positives and the possible pitfalls of each of these two different types of tshuva. So if Cook says, legabe meshech zmana, in terms of not necessarily the trigger, like I said before, or the part of my, of my mind or of my heart or of my being that I'm using to orient myself towards tshuva, which was really more the first parak. In terms of the time register, the time stamp of tshuva, ha-tshuva mitchalekes l'shnei chalakim. There are really two major polarities that we could speak about when we're talking about tshuva. Tshuva pitomis, v'tshuva hadragis. There is the sudden tshuva that we've been speaking about. There is this uh, Eliyahu Navi comes and he sees Elisha for the first time and he merely takes his cloak, takes his jacket on a brisk autumn day, and he throws his jacket, as is described in Tanakh, he throws his cloak over Alicia, and all of a sudden Alicia is nishapich li'ish acher. He just becomes a different person, and his whole life has changed in an instant. In a single moment, all of a sudden his whole life has changed. Or like we find when Shmuel and Shaul for the first time, again, that Lashon, which we find in many places, of a person being nishapich li'ish acher, just becoming a totally different person all of a sudden, going from the regular life that a person had to all of a sudden 
And there are different mishalom that we find in different traditions for this. You know, I, that's why I'm, I'm taking from Tanakh from the beginning. But we find this in, in different traditions, whether these are different things that I've heard from, from my teachers, from my Rebbeim, whether you have Rabbi Nachman's, uh, the tasting of the Hungarian wine. Uh, that's the mashal that Rabbi Nachman talks about. How, just very briefly, the, one of the stories of Rabbi Nachman is there was a certain um, worker who one time uh, was looking for a job. He ended up working for a very wealthy man who had a large stockpile of very fine Hungarian wine. He needed help bringing it to the fair and he needed someone to schlep the barrels because they're pretty heavy and pasnished for a wealthy guy to be schlepping his own barrels. So this fellow decides that he's going to try to help out the, the, the rich man to schlep the barrels of wine and he helps him put it onto his carriage and they're traveling together. And as they're traveling together, the wealthy man turns to this poor porter, this uh, schlepper, and he says to him, you know, I'm not such a bad guy and I'm going to pay you for your, for your work, but also since we're sitting here and there's barrels and barrels of this wine here, I'm going to crack open a barrel of wine. I'm going to give you a taste of Hungarian wine. I'm sure you've never tasted Hungarian wine before. When would you ever been able to afford Hungarian wine? And he gives him a taste of this Hungarian wine and it's the most delicious wine he's ever tasted in his life. He goes to the fair, he helps the guy sell his wine. At the end, they part ways, he gets paid. And, you know, the rest of the story, which basically consists of at various points in this porter's life, he ends up in a tavern here or there, or he ends up in some hotel and somebody trying to impress him tries to offer him Hungarian wine. And he says, sure, yeah, I'll take some of your Hungarian wine. And the guy pours him a cup of wine and he takes it. He says, this is not Hungarian wine. I've tasted Hungarian. I know what Hungarian wine is. And so for Rabbi Nachman, that tasting Hungarian wine in that mushal means that when you taste the real thing, your life is forever changed. And in the language of Rabbi Nachman, as he ends the story, he says, Misha ta'am yain hungari, someone who has once tasted yain hungari, lo yitabe olam klach, I'll never be fooled ever again. Because once you've tasted it, once you've tasted Eliyahu Navi touching you on the shoulder, and all of a sudden you're shocked with that electric bolt of my life is never going to be different. I tasted something totally different. Or in the tradition of Chabad, hearing that niggin, hearing a song that all of a sudden, the rest of your life, you're trying to track down that song because you tasted something, you heard something that totally altered the course of your life. That is akin to some level of tshuva pit omis. So now Rav Kukin is going, in his beautiful language, is going to describe this Indian of tshuva pit omis. What's that? Of course, yeah, you could, yeah. <laughs> of course you can ask questions. Uh, do you allow questions in, in God? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So, um, it's something external. Chuva Potomis. It seems like it. And, and what Rav Cook's going to say in a moment is also going to make it seem even more so external. Mm-hmm. Even more so external. And maybe that's one of the shortcomings of Chuva Potomis. Oh that it relies on this, to use Rav Kook's language in a second, which he borrowed from the Moran of Luchum from the Rambam, mm-hmm. it's a lightning bolt. It's a lightning bolt that all of a sudden lights up. You're walking around in this fog, in this dark forest, and you're trying to make your way out, and you're just not sure where to go, where is town, and where is deeper into the forest, and all of a sudden there is this gift. There is this gift, there is this external force that all of a sudden is like, literally uses the word, it's like a barak. It's this lightning bolt that strikes and all of a sudden lights up the night sky. And also for a moment, you, get, you catch a glimpse of, oh, okay, there's a lake over there. I don't want to go, I don't want to fall into that lake over there. And, and over there, that's going deeper into the forest where I just, that's just deeper into the thicket. But, but I saw in that lightning bolt, in that flash for a moment, I saw that there's a town over there. And if I follow that, if I follow that 
orientation of that gift of the lightning bolt that I was given for a moment. So then I could totally change the course of my life instead of being further and further lost and further and further deep in the forest where I don't know where I'm going. I have the opportunity finally to turn it around and to maybe, but yeah, that one of the shortcomings is you're relying on some external stimuli, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a parent, whether it's an experience, whether it's a, a negative experience, whether it's a sickness, whether it's a loss of, of, a, of you know, a loss of, of, a, of a loved one or something that just shocks me into a totally different way of, of wanting to live. So in Rav Kook's beautiful language here, hapitomis bamitoch eze barak ruchani. This tshuva pitomis comes as a sudden lightning bolt that lights up my life. The pam achas in a single instant. Makirhu esharav esakor shalachet v'nahafich leish acher. So you see in here in Rav Kook's language, he's taking from the language of the Rambam. The Rambam in the end of Mordechai describes this phenomenon of the the man who's seeking and trying to find Hashem and all of a sudden has this moment of revelation, whether it's Moshe Rabbeinu at the burning bush or whether it's Avram Avinu with the beard Dolekes, as Chazal described, seeing this building on fire and having this, this turnabout. Um, whether it's, uh, it could be so many different types of things. Whatever it is, it happens in an instant. And in that instant, at least in this level, the Tshuva Pitomis, which is not yet the Tshuva El Yona, which is going to incorporate both of these, the primary experience, at least in the way that Rav Cook is describing it here for us, is, is a self-loathing. It's not a very positive experience. It's, a, it's, a, it's in that moment of clarity, all of a sudden, uh, I look and I'm able to see makirhu es hara ve'es ha'ka'oras, the ugliness of the chait, of the way that I've been living. V'nahafich li'ish acher. And I am tempted and I am pulled in the direction of wanting to drastically change the way that I'm, that I'm living, to drastically change the way of my life. Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course. Does it, is it possible that this can come about through doing an Avera? Well, it only comes about through the lightning bolt or Eliyahu touching you or the niggin? My sense is, without having a... a necessary proof from of Cook's writing here is that of course it can come about through an Avera. Rock bottom. I know you hear so many stories of guys in prison who have you know found God in prison and it is that so that's that's coming about through a bad situation but you know uh, does that happen over time over their life in prison or does that happen like oh shoot I just killed somebody and then you that, that turns you to chew. One of my teachers, um, when I was 18 years old, <coughs> who um, may be some other people's teacher here as well, Rabbi Mendel Blachman, who is the, uh, the, I don't know exactly what title he exactly goes by, but he more or less runs the American program or the English-speaking program at Karen Biavna in, in KBY. Um, he also served as a kind of... Uh, I don't know exactly what his title was there either, but uh, in the yeshiva that I attended, which was Yeshiva Reshet Yerushalayim, um, he used to come uh, once a week and he would give two, two or three shirim in one shot on a single day. Um, in some, uh, for the two years that I was there, one year he gave like a Gemara shir followed by two Machshav shirim. <coughs> and they were always like really quite eye-opening, quite um, mind, mind-bending shirim. 
And I remember him sharing one time um, that he, at a certain point in his life, was a heavy smoker, um, as was the norm, I think, growing up in the Israeli yeshiva system in like the deep yeshivas. Um, and he talks about how some of his teachers, and even he says he remembers the early days when he used to give a shir, and he would light up a cigarette, and he would get so deep into the shir, by the time he went to go, you know, take a puff of it, it was already burnt down to his fingers, you know, like he, <laughs> but I guess that was during shir, but outside of shir, he spoke about how he used to smoke, you know, pretty heavily. He even told us the, uh, I forget what the brand was, but he was, he was reminiscing about the brand, Kedarko, and he, he told us about how he once went for a doctor's appointment. He had an x-ray, of, he had a cough, and he went for an x-ray of his lungs, and the doctor called him into the room and shut off the lights and turned on like the backlight of one of the things and showed him an x-ray of a pair of lungs. And he said, you see those little black dots on these lungs? He said, that's tar from nicotine, from smoking. So Rav Blachman said, oh, wow, that's like, wow. So then the doctor looked at him and said, Right, but th this is not your lungs. This is your lungs. And then he took it down and he put up his lungs and it was like considerably worse. Done. One shot. Finished. Never smoked a cigarette ever again. Now, not, everybody, not everyone has that experience. Not everyone has that experience. But that is what you're talking about, that all of a sudden a person is shocked. Now, is that lightning bolt from the doctor kind of doing that magic trick and like setting him up for this boom, you know, or was it the smoking itself that led him to rock bottom? In that case, it sounds more like the, the that's more like the Eliyahu, like somebody, the doctor was Eliyahu and tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, you've got a problem, time to turn it around. But I don't have to be a great student of, of spirituality or psychology to know that um, in our own lives and in the lives of people, you know, in our sphere of influence and, and certainly anyone who's a decently well-read knows that, you know, that sometimes a person hits rock bottom, does something, they just can't, they can't shake the feeling that this is, they've done something which is so profound that the only thing to do right now is to completely reinvent myself, to as if die and reinvent myself. And that happens from a negative experience, not from a positive experience. So I think both are definitely... Uh, possible and, and, and inevitable, you know, a person can, can and does automatically come to these moments of tshuva pit omis at certain junctures in life, and as the good Rebetzin pointed out, uh, I mean, you teach all of our children, what, what else should I call you? <laughs> so, um, you know, as Moradina pointed out, this is something which a person can sit and wait and wait and wait, and there's, there's no real way to call it to you, it just happens to you automatically. And so that's why there's a certain level of needing to obviously balance this with what we'll see in a moment is this more consistent, self-automated, you know, system of tshuva, which is going to be the tshuva hadragit. I've always wondered the question, statistically, um, when people do tshuva, you know, maybe and then they come to Aish or to your yeshiva, I'm not, I'm not talking about kids, maybe like adults. Are most of them coming because they hit rock bottom or are they coming like, wow, I just made a fortune, I'm retired, now I'm coming to Torah? I don't know the statistics. I don't know the statistics. Um, my experience in yeshiva is that people have not hit rock bottom. People are, are just searching. 
But it's also my experience that there is this, having been teaching formally, you know, in a classroom for about 15 years, first in high school and now in post-high school, there is definitely a cycle of moments of these like very powerful life-altering kind of moments. I'm sure we can all relate to that from our own experiences in Israel, where there's just these moments where like my whole life is now going to be different. It's so clear to me that things are not going to be the same. I might live the same, but I tasted something that is just, it's not forgettable. It's, it's, it's impossible to, to shake it. I could fall back into routines that are old, but that's because I didn't maintenance it with tshuva hadragit. But there's, there's both that are happening. In other words, in yeshiva, there's the day in, day out. But every year, there's always this kind of like roller coaster of these moments where it's just like, you know that something just happened to this person, and they know that something just happened to them, and then it's a function of, of maintenance and trying to, you know, trying to do something with that that's, that's much more healthy. I guess since you're asking this, I'm going to just jump for a moment into Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz has a, a beautiful set of svarim um, of his collected essays. And Rabbi Steinsaltz, um, in one of his books, it's called The Strife of the Spirit in English. I think he originally wrote it in English. I don't think it was written in Hebrew. <coughs> Although I think a lot of them have been translated into Hebrew. But this, for sure, was written originally in, in English. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just some of these Lashonos are so important because part of the shock value of it being a very um, jolting experience of whether hitting rock bottom or having even somebody artificially come and just shake you and wake you up, it's not always a, a good experience. Um, it's not always a healthy experience. And if a teacher um, or a therapist is not being careful with a client or with a, a student or is investing too much energy, um, psychic energy in opening a person up in that way, Rabbi Steinsaltz is a, you know, yes, on the one hand, he, he, wasn't, he had mystical inclinations. He did write a, one of the top-selling books in mysticism, I think, in, in, in all of America, The Thirteen Petal Rose, which has been, like, sold a bajillion times. But he was, a, he was a, you know, he, he, was a, he was also a, a scholar, you know, of, uh, of many different disciplines. So I guess we'll, we'll listen with a, with, a, with a grain of salt to some of the things that he's going to say here. This essay is called Religion and Mystical Powers. And so just to read a few sentences, I'm going to jump around because there's about two, three paragraphs. So we don't want to read the whole thing inside right now. There are exceptional individuals and exceptional revelatory situations in which this contact is much more intimate and meaningful. This lightning bolt that Rafael is talking about. The supernatural capacity itself is a part of the whole concept of madregot, steps or grades. Now, it's interesting because Rav Cook is going to talk about tshuva hadragit, which means this gradual steps. But there is this notion, as we're going to hear, about madregot. A person reaches a certain madrega. And unfortunately, there's no shortage of examples in Jewish history of people who were big bale madrega, which seems to mean that they skipped steps either through events in their lives or contact with certain people or um, that were not, not necessarily very good. 
The term madregot comprises the various forms of supernatural revelations. The relation to these madregot, though they may be also based in other disciplines, is like that of the Talmud. In other words, the Gemara, when it refers to madregot, he says, has an attitude of both respect and deference on the one hand. There's a certain sense of like, this person is a Baal Madrega. There's a certain clairvoyance that this person is blessed with. There's a certain charisma that this person, a certain, again, without being weird, a psychic power that there's something about this person which is Moshech and they seem to be spiritually attuned in a, in a certain way. But spiritually attuned doesn't necessarily mean holy. Like Bilam was a charismatic personality. It became a debased personality. So the Talmud has an attitude of both respect and deference on the one hand, together with a certain suspicion and disdain. In other words, Shuvah, and, and I would superimpose this on what Rav Kook is talking about, about Shuvah Pitomis. On the one hand, there's a certain deference and reverence that we have for Shuvah Pitomis. There's something powerful about it. There's something remarkable about it. And on the other hand, there's a certain suspicion or disdain that a person may have for this because... Although madregot were considered valuable means, they were never felt to be an end in themselves. A person could be a miracle worker and still not be a great person. The madrega and the person are not always on the same plane. Much has been written about situations in which a person receives madregot without the accompanying elevation of personality or being, so that the madregot may later destroy the soul of the person who receives them. Clearly, these distinctions have to be made. A person has to make a distinction between just being a Baal madrega and knowing how to use that in a way which is healthy and which is... Which is which is authentic. Many stories have been told about this, among them tales of a rabbi who discovered the ability to see at a distance when he was only a child. When he reached the age of six, his uncle, a tzaddik, said to him, I bless you to rid yourself of this Holy Spirit because it will impair your Jewishness. Then when you're 30 years of age and you want the madriga back, I'll return it to you. This shows the double attitude towards the supernatural respect and suspicion. For if it is not clearly and directly divine, it is very liable to be abused. There are many stories of people who are granted madrigot in order to confuse them. Again, so this s- s- smacks of, you know, very mystical, but on a certain level, we all know that sometimes a person is met with a certain experience which has, for one person, a very stilling effect or a, a certain staying power, and for another person, it's just, you know, they become filled with all types of dimyonot. Um, and I don't want to get into particulars of, of certain sadikim who people thought of as tzaddikim, who all of a sudden, you know, there were very difficult things that were found about, about these people, that they weren't tzaddikim, they were just people who were granted madregot that they didn't know how to properly uh, manage, um, including uh, from the Gemara. This is what he starts with about uh, Rabbi Akiva and different people entering into the pardes and having different reactions to this exposure to boom, to a, to a barak, to a lightning. Um, when a person is faced with their own ugliness or with the, 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 the temptation of power that comes with this, with, this, with this recognition, a certain way of being able to look at the world, so it's very easy to fool oneself and it's very easy to look at oneself with such ugliness that it just crushes you. So those are the, those are the, the, the possible downfalls of tshuva pitomis, that a person can, can really be uh, taken by that in a way which is not not super healthy. Ukvar margishu bikirbo hishtanut gemura letova. When it's properly done, so then this chuva pitomis, a person feels a certain change, an absolute change. 
for the good. This comes about through some unexplainable inner um, occurrence happening. Through some um, outpouring of the soul which comes, again, it can come from inside, but it, it's, it's a stirring that happens that wasn't necessarily planned for. A person can search out, you know, from the depths of that numinous experience of what it means to be a spiritual seeking person. But when it comes, it comes in a wave and it comes, you know, and it, it stays and a person has to know how to manage it and how to, how to deal with it. Now, the other thing that we know for sure about the Chuva Pit Omis experience, and I guess we'll, we'll end with this, is that it leaves. In other words, there is this, there is this moment of revelation that is then followed by an emptying out. In the language of, uh, of the Maharal, so the Maharal writes that it's not coincidental, we spoke about this a little bit last week, just the event, not, not the mechanics behind it. It's not, it's not accidental that um, when Am Yisrael received the Torah at Har Sinai, so that moment was a Shuva pitomis unlike we've ever experienced, you know, in the history of humanity. Since the eating of the Eitz Hadas, there was never a moment of clarity, of absolute, just paradigm-shifting way of looking at the world that happened at, at our Sinai. And it's not coincidental that as soon as that kind of rushed back, as soon as the wave, you know, crashed down and then rushes back in, the immediate after effect of that, as the Maral writes in Netzach Yisrael, is the Chireya. Because when not properly managed, this is exactly what Rav Steinsel was just talking about, when not properly managed, when we don't know exactly what it is that just hit us, so the automatic effect afterwards is imbalance. And the automatic effect afterwards is what the Maharal refers to as he'eder. He'eder. In the, in the writings of, um, let's say, the Orachayim HaKadosh, the Orachayim HaKadosh in Parshas Tazria, um, and, and the Maharal for sure, the notion of Tumah, the existence of Tumah, is always a reaction to where there was some revelation of something great that then becomes sucked out. So for example, the Avi Avosa Tumah is a human body. How does Tumah get formed? Because there was life there. And so when that life then gets pulled out of the body, so that creates a vacuum, a void of Kedusha, the Chilul, the there, this Chilul, this vacuum cause is then filled with Tumah. I'll give you a very good example that I use all the time that I experienced one summer um, in a very kind of like extreme form. I spent a particular summer uh, studying in a kolel in upstate New York, in Camp Masora, um, under the tutelage of Rabbi Meir Goldicht. And I got there um, one summer, maybe four or five days before everybody else. Just happened to be that I was up there a little earlier, I was helping set up. I was in the Kolel part-time and I was teaching on the Chinuch staff as well. So I, because I guess of my role as Chinuch staff, I had to come a few days early to kind of set up the, you know, the, the gazebos where they were going to have the Chinuch and the Sfarim and this. So I was up there a few days early. And if you've ever had a similar experience, if you've ever come to a place where there is just the, the brimming of potential of what will be a summer that's lying ahead. So I'm sure when you go to set up the Gan, you know, the first day when you're, you're there alone and you're, 
you're, you're setting it up. Or, or all of us, when you come into the office and it's just quiet and you're the, you're the first person there and there's the whole day of actualized potential waiting to be unfolding. So there's a certain feeling of kedusha, of, of I don't know exactly what it is, of, a, of an excitement, of a, of a, a liveness, of a vitality. Now, it's the exact same situation. It's just you, or it was just me, with my crate of svarim, you know, in the empty base medrash, and some of those hours sitting and learning over those three, four days before everyone came up were some of the best days of learning that I had that whole summer. Now, it happened to be that that same year, I was also one of the last people in the, in the kolel after everybody had left. Um, I was driving back one of the elder Chinuch staff members who was, happened to have been my Rebbe, Rav Shalom Rosner. Actually, I was driving back his U-Haul truck. So I was there for an extra day or two while he was packing up and everything. And I was, again, and this is what struck me so strong because it was the same summer. I was sitting there with my same creative Sfarim and empty base medrash and there was this feeling of death. This feeling of being left behind because of the principle that the Orachayim HaKadosh is teaching us that when there's a void, when there's this vacuum of there, there was this experience that was there and now it's been this chilul, this, this void which is created there, it, it, it leaves this tumma behind. And so if that's true of just the regular experience, then certainly the experience of tshuva pitomis, which we may not get past this this week, I don't know if we'll finish the, the chapter, but the experience of tshuva pitomis comes with this really strong aftershock that once the wave pulls back and you're hit with this lightning bolt of like, wow, life could be different and I'm doing all these things wrong and, but look at this path of, of beauty that's just laid out in front of me so clearly. And then all of a sudden the lightning bolt kind of fades away and, the, and you're back sitting in darkness again. And if not harnessed properly and almost, um, transformed into tshuva hadragit, if it's not transformed in this kind of second level of maintenance tshuva, which is very subtle and very consistent and very, you know, slow and steady, then the experience of having had this big wave actually is totally negative. Because as soon as it pulls back in and the tide kind of just like pulls me back, I'm very unbalanced and now there's, it's that experience at the end of camp or at the end of the work day when you're the last person in the office and everyone already went home and it just feels horrible, right? That experience is the experience that comes in the aftermath of tshuva pitomis. This feeling of, mm, that, wasn't, that wasn't real. It was, it was, once again, it came from the outside and it came so suddenly and it left as, as fast as it came. Um, a number of years ago I heard... Uh, just all of these are helpful for kind of like painting this picture of the problems in theory with Chuba Pitomis, um, even though it's a great gift, you know, and, and I think probably many of us have experienced this at a certain point, this, whether it's at a wedding or when your first child is born or some experience in when you just made Aliyah or something that, that just shook you to like, wow, life is going to be different now. And at, with all of that good comes this possibility of really just, you know, waking up and realizing whoa, that was something external to me and all I was shown is what in theory I could be, but I'm still, still left the way that I am. So one of, one of the, um, another perhaps muscle or, or story which is helpful for thinking about this, um, which I heard from Rav Moshe Weinberger many, many years ago, is um, the story of uh, the, the Baal Shem Tov's horses. So everybody knows that the Baal Shem Tov, at least in the, 
in the, in the tradition of the Hasidim, so the Baal Shem Tov sometimes would travel on a regular travel. And sometimes the Baal Shem Tov would travel with Kvitzas HaDerech. You know, the Baal Shem Tov was certainly uh, a charismatic mystic, and he was capable of traveling with this secret of Kvitzas HaDerech. So sometimes when he needed to get to some place fast, uh, you know, the horses would all of a sudden... Uh, if anyone purchased Rabbi Judah Michelle's book, you see the picture of the wagon being lifted up into the air with the horses kind of like flying up into the air. And uh, this experience of Kvitzah Zederich. Now, whenever that would happen, as the story goes, uh, his driver, Alexei, who was not Jewish, but a very holy non-Jewish fellow, would blindfold himself, and he would blindfold the horses because they weren't on the, on the level to see, you know, such a thing happening. But as the horses were flying through the air and the carriage was doing its thing, you know, the horses would start looking at each other and um, take, it, take it with a grain of salt if you must. If you don't have to, then, then you don't have to. But, um, and the horses would look at each other and be like, we're not horses. Horses can't fly like this. And, you know, we're, we're malachim. We're angels. We must be angels. You know, and they would look at each other incredul- incredulously as they're flying through, you know, through space and time at rapid speeds. <coughs> and thinking to themselves that they're the ones who are causing this uh, remarkable liftoff to take place. And after, you know, what was a few minutes of, uh, of, of flight, they would land back down and they would arrive at their destination. And the horses, thoroughly convinced of their status as angels, as malachim, uh, you know, would, would congratulate themselves for their newfound status until all of a sudden they would land back down and they would reach their destination and Alexei, the driver, would pull them up to the feeding trough, you know, and the horses would take their heads and stuff their heads into the feeding trough like horses do. And then the horses looked at each other and they said, I guess we're just horses after all, you know. We had this moment of, like, flying super high and then you recognize, like, maybe this wasn't us. Maybe it was just some external force, whether it's, again, it's a very important story, exactly how you relate to the story, each person on their own darga of how they relate to these types of stories. But it's a very important story in the sense that whether it's Eliyahu Navi or the experience of having a child or the experience of, you know, finishing your first Masechta or keeping your first Shabbos or each person in their own lightning bolt of life thinks like, wow, like, I'm a tzaddik now or I'm a tzaddikas now. Like, look at me, like, I'm flying. And then you, at some, um, some point, the wave, you know, pulls back in and you're left like, oh, I guess I'm just, I guess I'm just a horse. Except that now that I've tasted that, there's the possibility of being so off kilter that it could be somewhat dangerous. So what do we do about this? What is a person to do about this? So there is a Torah from the Avodos Yisrael of Kajnitz, and we'll read this, and then maybe we'll have uh, about 13 minutes left. So maybe we'll venture into the Tshuva Hadragit, um, or maybe we'll save it for next time. But there's a Tshuva from the, there's a, um, there's a Torah from the Avodos Yisrael of Kajnitz, the Kajnitz or Magid, where he's actually writing about Pesach, of all things, but the, the, it's an apropos teaching to try to explain this idea of tshuva pitomis and how we're supposed to manage this. It's found in the Vodis Yisrael, um, in his entries for, for Pesach. And everybody knows that Pesach um, is very much this experience. We spoke about this uh, briefly last time as well, where the Jewish people were at the 49th level of Toma, and all of a sudden through some external stimuli, Moshe Rabbeinu comes with his staff, and he just rips the Jewish people out of Egypt in this tshuva pitomis, this all of a sudden, 
you know, and that's mirrored every single year <coughs> in the experience of, of the Seder night, where uh, we all say, Svardim and Ashkenazim and Timanim, all of us have in our Nusach, that Mora um, Gadol, that's part of the Haggadah, and, the, and the, the, based on the teaching of Chazal, Chazal says, Zugilo Shechina. And in that moment of Zugilo Shechina, of the Seder night, there is this amazing revelation that takes place on the Seder night, where the Rosh Hashanah of Emuna basically instills in a Jew this faith in the fact that I too have been taken out of Egypt and I too have a personal connection with Hashem. And in the language of Hasidus, in the language of the, of the Hasidic masters, so immediately after Pesach, there is this sudden crash that takes place. And what the Avodah Yisrael is speaking about in this small piece, which we'll read a, a tiny bit of right now, is that Halodavarhu, isn't it remarkable that immediately after Pesach, there is this period of Sefir Saomer. And whereas the Pesach experience is this sudden boom of emuna, just completely shocking our system with emuna, where children and parents and grandparents are all sitting around, and it's this moment of intense passing on the emuna of the Jewish people that all of us were taken out of Egypt. Him and his whole family. And then immediately after that, there's this very detail-oriented daily counting of... And for the Vodos Yisrael, what that means is that immediately after this great revelation of mochin, of intense intellectual revelation that takes place on Pesach, there is a necessary maintenance that takes place immediately after that, where we need to break things down into a very... In, into a very concrete and routine, scheduled way of making sure that this experience, this tshuva pitomis, doesn't rock the boat, but rather is used as fuel to kind of push us into a, into a more clear routine. So he says like this, V'aklal sh'tzarech adam lizkor b'shas mochin degadlas l'hachin atzmo l'asos roshen b'kirbo v'gam sh'yestalik b'menu ha'islavas lo yipol legamre. The principle, the general principle is that a person needs to remember when they're in a moment of intense, what's referred to as mochin de godless. That is a psychological term, which means of expanded consciousness in a time when things are going well and things seem clear and the marriage is going well and the kids are behaving and everything is kind of like open and good and clear and direction is, you know, I understand why I'm in, in, you know, why I'm in this course and how this is going to help me, you know, have my career move forward, until, and that's usually at the beginning, that always happens at the beginning, and then you hit that moment when all of a sudden, you have to prepare yourself in that moment when things are going kind of great, to make a mark inside of you in that moment, so that when that fire goes out, is pulled away, you won't fall completely. You'll be able to be victorious in the war. And you'll be able to rely on Hashem. He says, this is the secret of what it means when we say, Emor So the Pasuk says, Emor In Parshas Emor, Rashi has this, uh, why does it say, Emor So Rashi says, That it's this double lotion of, you should say to the Kohanim, and they should say, it means that there's a certain, if we kind of like expand this out into a psychological register instead of just talking specifically about the Kohanim, there are experiences of life where a person is a Kohen. That means to say, I'm in the Beis HaMikdash. 
things are clear. There's gadol, there's a, a, a mindset which is gadol, which is big, which, expand, which is expanded. And then I need to make sure lahazir gidolim al haktanim to warn the gidolim. Now, in the simple interpretation of Rashi's words, it means to tell the older kohanim to look after the younger kohanim. That's the simple words. But the deeper level of what Rashi is revealing here, says the Lord Yisrael, is that there's always experiences of when you are in a state of gidolim, when you're in a state of godless, where in that state of godless, you need to warn yourself, this is not going to be forever. Shabbos is going to end, and I'm going to go back to the six days of the week. There is going to be an end to this high experience. And now, when I'm in that high experience, I need to start planning already for the time of the Ketanim, of the Katnas HaMochen, of how I'm going to then continue that experience even after the wave has rushed back, rushed back in. And so he says this is exactly what's happening in terms of um, the Pesach experience and everything that comes afterwards, this very Prati experience that comes afterwards where I have to... And then you work yourself up. Rabbi Akiva Tatz actually wrote about this uh, extensively, not in World Mask. What's the other book that he... Uh, Living Inspired. Living Inspired. Living Inspired, he, thank you. In, in Living Expired, he has this, this triple cycle of, Laughter. you know, basically there's this moment of revelation. We'll call that Nisan. We're taken out of Egypt. And then there's ER, which is the Sphiris Omer experience, till we can actually have this synthesis and integration to the point that we can come back and by Shavuos, we'll be prepared to have a real big experience again, but, you know, properly integrated. And ideally, that should have happened. It didn't exactly work out like that in the first experience. Um, we had the Chere Egel in the, in the quick aftermath. But really, the experience of Chuba Ptomas is supposed to be immediately followed by a period of real integration of, of, this, of this, sudden, this sudden burst. So these are the two experiences that, um, these, these, these are the two options that we have before us. We have tshuva pitomis, which I think we've tried to, tried to kind of like fill in the contours of the positives of it, which is the fact that it could be so life-altering in this really positive way. And at the same time, recognizing the A, the possibility that maybe it's an unearned madrega which can do damage. And maybe one way to do damage control is that in that moment of this heightened experience, to recognize that there is not only the possibility, but the ultimate necessity of making sure that I figure out how to channel that into very routine, detailed um, kind of uh, living. Okay, so... <laughs> I'm going to push off, I'm going to push off um, getting into the Tshuva Hadragit. We'll do that in your session next week. just want to take one other angle um, from one of the students of Rav Kook, which I think is helpful for, for filling in this uh, just one, one last little bit. Um, and that is from the Sefer Meimarum from Rav Yaakov Moshe Charlap. Um, there are about 20 of these svarim on different topics. This particular one is on uh, Geula, on the experience of, of Geula. It's called Mimayne HaYeshua. And um, it's one of the first books of his that I own. And um, he has here in Perik Vav a small chapter that's called Geulas Haneshama Bipit Omius. So um, obviously he's drawing from Rav Kook's writings here as well. He was a student and a, a, a friend of Rav Kook's. 
And I just want to read the first paragraph, and we'll probably end with this right for now. And he talks about the experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and how the experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim was an experience of chipazon. It was an experience of this jump um, from zero to 60 so quickly, or negative 49 to positive 49 or positive 50. That was so sudden that, and I'll just say this and then we'll, we'll read his words inside, that the neshama is capable of doing that. The neshama is not bound by time in the way that the body is. The body is a slow actor. The body needs to work its way into something. And so oftentimes what happens in tshuva pitomis, which is the danger, is that you end up with this split. That the neshama is like, yeah, let's do it. We're ready. Let's, we can live perfectly. You know, we're ready to live this idealistic way of living. But the body, as uh, one social scientist uh, wrote a book not that long ago, the body keeps score, you know? And uh, the body is not so ready to change its habits. And so even if the neshama is like ready for the next level or to jump several levels in one shot, the body has routines and the body has things that it's used to. So in his language so beautifully, what he describes as the difference between the final redemption and the redemption this, and the, the first redemption, which is the redemption from Egypt, is the fact that the final redemption is going to be where the body and the soul are going to be able to be on track with one another. As opposed to the first redemption, Mitzrayim, which was so rocky, and the whole experience of the 40 years in the Midbar is just like one failure after another, it's because we were essentially ripped out of Egypt, and the soul was like ready to, ready to do that, but the, but the Jewish body was not yet fully developed. And so part of what Rav Kook saw as the return to Eretz Yisrael as being this kima kima la'at la'at of the, the body and the soul kind of like working together is that the frustration that, we're, that we sometimes see and that Rav Cook certainly saw and his students saw as well, the frustration of, on the one hand, having, let's say, the soul of the Jewish people or those people who are the flag bearers of the soul of Torah and mitzvot and the people who are the flag bearers of the body of building up the land and building up the army and the, and the body of the Jewish people and them not being able to get along, all of that frustration is really a holy experience of not having it happen too quickly. Because so long as they're not aligned with each other, the geula is not fully able to arise as opposed to in the first redemption, and then we'll just read the paragraph from the land. In the first redemption, there was no split between anybody who wasn't ready to be redeemed but got left behind in Egypt. And Hashem just pulled us out so quickly that all of the souls were just ready to jump into Hashem's arms, but the body wasn't ready yet, and so this caused all this kind of chaos. And so here, it might be a more gradual process. It's not an all-of-a-sudden experience like by Mitzrayim, which happened all of a sudden. But even though it's more gradual and therefore somewhat more frustrating, it is more lasting because the body and the soul are happening in, in, in tandem with one another. The ones that were left behind, I, just to clarify, their souls were ready, but their bodies were not ready, so they're left behind. And then the ones that came out, their souls are ready and their bodies was 
kind of ready. Mm. So I imagine all souls were ready. The, the ones that were left behind from the from the traditions that I've that I've read, the ones that were left behind were not the souls weren't even ready to. They were they were they were just we're gonna stay here. We're good here. Meaning it wasn't that they were ready. They were not ready. They were, they were willing on staying there forever. There was no... The Pasuk says that Hashem was motzi b'nei Yisrael mitachas sivlos Mitzrayim, which means from under the, the burden of Mitzrayim, but the word sivlos also comes from the notion of savlanut, that they were, sa- they were sovel Mitzrayim, that Hashem basically, there was a certain cross-section of the Jewish people who were tired enough that Hashem was able to say, let's go, and they said, let's get out of here. But there were certain people who had resigned their fate there, Lugamre, and those are the people who got left behind. Just super quickly, and then we'll take any questions after, if there, if there are. In the final redemption, the body and the soul will be redeemed together. Both in a supernatural way as pertains to the soul, and in a very natural way, as this pertains to the body. A kind of twinning of this on the one hand, wanting things to happen very quickly and being ready, and at the same time, happening slowly. The nefesh, the soul, which is ready to have it happen miraculously and with great haste. And the guf, beteva v'la'at and since in Mitzrayim, the whole goal of Mitzrayim was to free the Jewish soul. We hadn't even entered into Eretz Yisrael yet. There was no concept of the Jewish body yet. There was no kingship. There was no government. There was no land. We didn't have any of that yet. The whole goal of Mitzrayim was just to free the Jewish soul from bondage. The whole thing happened super quickly. But that's why all the problems that manifested themselves in the aftermath of Mitzrayim is because even though the soul was yanked out of Mitzrayim so quickly, the guf was still in this tzivyono, in this state, in this uh, experience that was very exilic. Which is why the Jewish body, the Jewish people kept on saying, we want to go back, we want to go back, we want to go back. We're scared. This is too much. This is too intense. But at the same time, there's something exhilarating about it on a neshama level. We want to go back to Mitzrayim. The Geula Asida is going to be this twinning of the experience of the body and the soul together. That final redemption, which doesn't come with another exile after it, where the soul and the body are both redeemed, that's why the final redemption is described in the Gemara as coming the exact opposite of the Mitzrayim experience. Because the tshuva pitomis of Mitzrayim left the body behind. And the tshuva of Lasid Lavo, which is going to be the final redemption, has to happen slowly so that the tshuva pitomis will have the ability to also find its grounding, like we said before, lahazer gedolim alektanim. So that it'll be a, a more lasting type of tshuva. So that it won't be pitom yavol el hechalo adon asher atem evakshim umalach abris asher atem chafetzmi. What's the pasuk from Malachi? That on the one hand there is going to be this pitom experience, but we're already living through the laat laat now. So that by the time we get to that 
to that final stage of Hashem pulling back the curtain, there will be so much work that's already happened that the Jewish people and the, Jewish, the body of the Jewish people will be so properly developed that we'll be able to continue to walk with it and it won't be something which is just this shock value without being able to, to deal with it afterwards. So we're going to pause here. Mr. Hashem, next week we'll, we'll try to continue and we'll talk about the opposite side, which also has positives and negatives as well, which is the, the darga of tshuva hadragit, the slow and gradual tshuva. And Hashem should help us to create a synthesis of the two of them and to be able to do proper tshuva.